Some things are secret. Some things are not. Sometimes those secret places are right in front of you. You drive by them, you walk by them, and you never see them. This secret is named Philippe. Philippe is a place in downtown Los Angeles. David told me this secret. He said, Tony, you have not been to Philippe? And I said, no. And he said, Tony, let's record it, Philippe. And thus shall be and was and will be. Hi, I'm David Kukoff, author of Children of the Canyon and Los Angeles in the 1970s, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. And on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have David Kukoff. He has written scripts for every studio in town and has 10 produced film and TV credits to his name. He is the author of Children of the Canyon and his latest book, 1970, in the, Los Angeles in the 1970s. I, I said that wrong. I'm sorry. It's okay. it's okay. People call it 1970 all the time because that's what's on the cover. So it's totally understandable. It's, yeah. Yeah. And then, um, and, this is, and this is a book that you edited with a bunch of people just discussing the amazingness of 1970s LA. How you doing, David? <laughs> Good, man. Good to be here. And we and we are in Philippe, which I couldn't be happier to be in because I feel like this is the most one of the quintessential LA haunts. You know, that, you know that we could be talking about a book that is really about you know some of the most lived-in LA experiences I could come across. That yeah, yeah. Yeah, and this is my first time here, and I walked in and I was just like, oh my god! I've been in LA six years and I haven't been here yet. I have a problem. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's okay. I mean, I'm embarrassed to say that I've I'm 53 and I've lived in Los Angeles for the better part of a half a century, and I only came here for the first time I think seven or eight years ago. Really? So yeah, oh. you're, you're you know, I, and I can safely say that I have friends who've been here as long as I have, lived here their whole lives, never been here. Really? Yeah. All right. I feel like that. I, I don't feel as bad anymore, but I feel bad about so many other things in my life. So so this is just one less thing, yeah. one less burden. Yeah, we all do. Sure. Yeah. We were talking earlier about uh, San Francisco, and because I'm from San Francisco, so we were shooting shooting the shit about that. And it's just we uh, the differences between San Francisco and Los Angeles, which I adore Los Angeles, and it's and I I find there's people in San Francisco that don't have the same adoration. And in fact, I didn't have it until I came down here and stayed in it. Yeah, I, I would actually when you say there there are people, I would say you're officially the first I've met who's from San Francisco and has not only kind things to say about LA, but really has embraced it and loved it. I just haven't, you know, it's funny because I remember growing up, there was always a sense that that the rivalry between Los Angeles and San Francisco was really one-sided. That you know, we the, the people from the from Northern California would say, "Oh, I hate it down there. It's all much," you know, they they you know they buy into the, all the super the generalities and superficial, you know, the, the, and we would kind of you know dignify it by saying oh I love it up there it's really oh it's so fun it's so pretty yeah. and, and we had nothing bad to say about it and I I think that what certainly back then and I mean I can I could speak to for you know, a, a kind of amorphous of then versus now but then you know Los Angeles let's face it was for it was always a vital interesting city and that's one of the things that the book I think you know really aims to celebrate is that there was there there was culture here it just was our own culture it wasn't New York's or an established East Coast city's version of culture or or sense of culture but we had our own culture it just wasn't the the stuff that you would think of when you think of an urban center and I think that people were quick to pounce on yeah. our lack of an opera our lack of a cohesive museum scene you know, the food was certain was was awful I mean there were a lot of things that you just kind of you know when you check off the, the list of what Tenley quote makes a city a city it wasn't there and San Franciscans had a field day with that plus of course the fact that we didn't always do ourselves any favors by exporting shows like Baywatch or you know <laughs> Charlie's Angels and kind of bubble headed you know but at the same time What's happened, I think, is Los Angeles in the last 10, 15 years, um, really maybe, but but really in the last five in particular, if the New York Times is any barometer of this, has earned the grudging respect of its two 
you know, greatest bet noirs, New York and San Francisco, where everybody's kind of looking at the city saying, wow, this really is kind of this, the most interesting city in America. It seems to be the, the, you know, the cutting edge of everything. I mean, we, we, are, we are really a cultural powerhouse. And I don't know that you can quite say the same for those other two places, because let's face it, the ultra rich have pushed everybody out of there. And, it, you know, you don't have the same sense. Like for, I was in New York in, for college in the 80s. And you could just, there were frontiers everywhere. You could stumble onto crazy scenes happening down in the village or in Soho, or, and certainly, you know, in the outer boroughs. Yeah. That's not the case anymore. And it's not even the case in the outer boroughs so much anymore. Whereas Los Angeles, it's so vast that there are still emerging scenes here. I mean, fewer and fewer, I think, because we are starting to unfortunately tilt a little bit and, and list a little bit in, that, in, in the direction, but in that direction. But we still do have a lot going on here. A lot of these pockets of culture that I think are easy to stumble upon. You know, yeah. you know Jonathan Gold's whole whole mo was find these ethnic restaurants right not the big obvious you know hot new whatever place, but find some you know salvadoran place or some yeah. thai place or some just something that, that, that where, the, where, where people eat and it's casual and and yet where they're doing exciting incredible things with food right. and that i think in a nutshell it sums up a lot of los angeles's approach to culture is maybe not quite so big and loud but it's there and it's a lot of fun and there and there's just I've just loved the beauty of, okay, so like in East Hollywood, where I'm at, there's this place called The Clubhouse. It's Los, like right by Los Feliz. And there's, it's just a huge strip mall. It's CBS. It's John's. And then there's just this door. And sometimes there's people in line in front of the door. And you know what they're in line for? To see Maria Bamford work on her material for an hour before she goes to San Francisco and charges 40 bucks. And, and it's just like, oh, if you have $5, go ahead and donate. And if you don't, don't worry about it. That's L.A. to me. It's like there's so much open to you. You just have to really keep your eyes open. And there's something sexy about that. Yeah, I so hope we don't lose that, man. I just, yeah. I, I really, and I mean, you know, like I said, you can see that's starting to happen. Like I, I used to live in a neighborhood right a mile away from here called the Arts District where, you know, and I moved there five years ago after my divorce. And I can safely say that I was not a pioneer by any stretch of the imagination. It was already safe and it already, it already been settled for sure. It wasn't the cracked out, weird, you know, super slummy place it was 20 and 30 years ago where everyone could film car chase explosions because nobody would call the cops on you. But it had certainly, it had happened. It was kind of on the map, but you know, we had an earth cafe and you know, a, you know, a cute little urban radish you know, market. And that was kind of it. There really wasn't much more. There were still artists living there. There was still, my fiance and I would walk around and still bump into artists and see weird things everywhere and come and stumble across like an open warehouse where somebody was doing a great, you know, fashion shoot or putting together an underground film festival or something like that. And that was the arts district. And about two years ago, that just overnight went away. It's just all of a sudden they were building a mall on the corner. Earth Cafe became, a, I mean, it was always crowded, but there were more and more restaurants opening up and all the artists got priced out. And it just got to the point where, you know, everyone was Instagramming their lattes in the middle of the street and walk around like it was downtown Disney or something. I said, this place just hit the, you know, hit the radar and hit the radar too hard. I'm not sure that it's completely recovered, but... You know, you're you're so right though. There are st for every one, for every you know semi overrun neighborhood like that. There's still an emerging East Hollywood. There are still emerging parts of I would say West Adams emerging, but I mean there are neighbors all over the city, and I hope that they don't get you know so self-conscious the way silver lake is self-conscious you know i hope that there or highland park has become a little self-conscious i hope that you know we still have these great ethnic pockets like boyle heights that has preserved its identity that has not allowed itself to become over gentrified and latteed latteified you know <laughs> etc so i'm really you know and so I, i'm encouraged that we can still hold on to some of these, of these great ethnic pockets without foregoing some of it and just becoming one big you know gentrification artisanal foodie sprawl I love the word latteed. No, oh, that 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 city that that city's all latteed now. I want to use that in the sentence from here on. I don't th I don't think I invented that. I, I can't. I really? can't. Yeah, probably not. I can't. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like oh man, like San Francisco, oh the Mission District. District. Well, I was there before it was latteed. It's it is a good verb. Come to think of it, yeah, yeah. yeah so okay, yeah, yeah. Let's let's just pretend like you introduced it on okay. this show, and that's and um, yeah. Let's. Fair, enough. Fair enough. All your listeners, okay. That's you know TM trademark. Yeah, exactly. Um, so growing up here in the growing up here in the seventies, and plus we just got the film, the Quentin Tarantino's film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> I saw your face because because you 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 actually have a book about that era yeah. that's very close to it. So, look, I respect what he was going for. I mean, yeah. nobody you know nobody is more passionate about 
you know, about Hollywood's history and about movies and te television shows from that era than, than Tarantino, obviously. And what I just want to say for the record, if you've not been to the New Beverly Theater, the theater he owns, yeah. it's amazing what he did for it. I mean, he yeah. took this kind of little, you know, like modest, sweet little revival house and turned it into a scene. And and by he did that because what he he did it by, you know, by by doing what he does so well in his movies, which is that he's one of the few filmmakers who can really bring the highbrow and the lowbrow together. Right. So and 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 really give them the same viewing pleasure. And and very few people do that. And and that's what he does in the movies. He really has made this stated, you know, made this case for the low art being an important consideration as well. And so he shows grindhouse films and B films and all kinds of stuff that you know the American Cinematheque would never show. And revival houses that are only doing things that you know from like you know like, like 1952 is the last year on their map. And here he is showing all these kind of films like CC and Company and biker films, whatnot, and making a case these deserve to be in the canon and, you know, as well. So w the problem I have with that film ultimately was not that it wasn't you know. A worthy exploration of an era that's coming to an end, and you know, and, and, and a meticulous recreation of it. I just thought it was so damn boring. I just wait, kept waiting for something to happen that was interesting. And then when it came time for all the Manson stuff to happen, I mean, yeah, the Spawn Rant stuff was kind of was kind of fascinating, you know. But but by the time it, hit, it got to the end, you were just kind of like two and a half hours of this. I, what the hell was that? I don't know. But. Uh, you know, growing up here, what what I've what I love talking about, what I wanted some, uh, what I really wanted to get across in some of these essays that that you know when I when I asked writers and people I knew who grew up here to write for them was that there was a sense that the city hadn't been fully discovered yet. Yeah, you were you know there were there were all these parts of it that still felt a little bit like the Wild West. Like I went to a school, an elementary school up on Mulholland, that you know you got this feeling that if you wandered up. You know, out too far, like the cavalry wasn't coming for you. You know, the you know, there could be the Manson family or some weird cult out there or coyotes or some wildlife. And, you know, it was still kind of, it feels still felt a little bit rough. It still felt a little bit like, you know, and at the same time, as kids, we would, I would take the bus when I was 10 or 11 years old by myself with my bike and go over the hill to my friend Encino and ride my bike to his house. And my mother wouldn't know where I was or whatever. I'd, you know, just coming you know, so I'm going to Robbie's house I'll sleep over or whatever and that would be it you could still use this city like you like a, like a kid with a small town uh, in the east coast or a suburb and we didn't have any sense that that was not okay and no point did anyone say it's a big dangerous stuff. and by the way it wasn't that it was a safer city at all the crime rates were much higher than they are now kids were abducted right and left you had serial murders and cults and crazy crazy shit going on and and a lot of that's in this book I mean we have we have a great murder mystery story we have a great cult story we have you know, all that stuff's here because it was, the, you know, that was happening at the time. But at the same time, we there, there, there was this feeling that the city was a little more wide open to you. That if you had the appetite for exploration, you could go out there and, and discover your own your own stuff. Whereas I'm not sure. I'm positive. I'm not sure. I'm positive that the, the kids now do not have that sense of the city. That's not that's not available to them. Twelve year olds are in their little protected universes, and they're given they're driven to playdates and they're programmed. They have their schools. They have their little tribal areas that they're part of and their friends that are. But they are not out on their own, just making their own fun and figuring and, and kind of exploring the city in their own right. If I had a 12-year-old, I'd give him a butterfly knife, tell him how to use it, and then say, go play. Right, right, right. <laughs> I'm kidding. I, I, I wouldn't do that, but. You would, yeah, not now. Probably not, you know. <laughs> Even like I said, statistically, it's much safer than it was back then. Yeah, but yeah. that's, you know. There was such a beauty that I mean I remember being a kid in the you know dreary suburb of San Francisco, being six years old and riding my bicycle down to the little downtown area so I can buy a Coke, and it's just it, it, that it's just unfathomable yeah. now, and it, it's just it almost feels like it everything's kind of lost in it. it. I don't know. I'm blows my mind. Yeah, it's you know it, it's easy to get nostalgic, and, and, and one of the the, the one of the part of the, the book wasn't just to be, hey, wasn't it better back then? I mean, we, yeah. everyone who grew up here, of course, has certain. We all like. I was on a Facebook page. It just went on ad infinitum about all the things we missed about right. Los Angeles in the seventies, and the, you know the things that were so much fun back then. They're, oh my God, don't you miss? And you know, I have to say, for the most part, I mean, just by any objective measure, this is a better city now yeah. than it was back then. Again, a it is safer. B 
it is interesting. It is interesting in a way that, you know, like I said, there's a reason why all the major cities, not only just here, but in the world, are looking to Los Angeles to say, hey, what's going on there? It's become a world-class center of culture. And we didn't have those options growing up. We didn't, we just didn't. I mean, the adults were always kind of like, what the hell is this place? I mean, you know, it's the food options are nothing, you know. I I mean, it's a sort of a theater, but you know, it didn't really explode until Amis and Taper really took off. And, And, you know, by and large, it was for a place that has many people as it had and it was the entertainment capital of the world ostensibly this wasn't as much to do so overall like I say it's become it's become a better place it's become a more interesting place but it's not, you know, but at the same time, I felt like this was the last decade where, you know, before the Olympics in LA really became a pl- major player on the world stage. Yeah. This was the last, you know, batch of years where it was still kind of muddling around, sort of finding itself, still being kind of weird and fucked up, and 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 and, and having and, and not quite under as big a microscope. And I, I believe you brought it up in your intro, and it's also used in someone's uh, in one of the essays that I was reading in there about the Woody Allen's quote about uh, the, cult, yeah. the the culture. Yeah. Everybody, you know, it's funny because somebody wanted, somebody reviewed the book and said I must have read that quote about five times. I'm like, I think it's only technically in there twice, yeah, but twice. yeah, but somehow it just. It, you know it, that line sort of was just everybody's favorite, like you know, like like lightning rod punching bag for like for this city. Oh, it's you know, it was not true back then. It was never true. Like a lot of things that we kind of think, you know, summarize something succinctly. No, not really. Uh, you know, it just—it was a very snobby New Yorkers, you know, disdainful take on a, on a, on an interesting, complicated city. And one of my favorite, you know, one of my our, our, our contributors, Luis Rodriguez, who was the poet laureate of the city, um, had a great point. It's just to me encapsulates everything that you know. I wanted this book to point out was that. You know, when we sit here and say downtown LA, right, had yeah. this major, you know, renaissance, and now it's so, and, and people, the, the, the common knock on, on downtown LA back then was, it was so underpopulated, it was empty, it was like a ghost town, I was like, it wasn't a ghost town, it had a thriving, it just was a Latino population, so you had a thriving bunch of Latino cultures here, it's just that it wasn't Anglo, and so everyone just magically assumed that it didn't exist, that's a very typical way to look at something, which is that, you know, it's not like you know the scenes were everywhere. People were doing wonderful, interesting things. It's just that it didn't hit the, you know, the the conventional white or Anglo, you know, you know, newspapers and magazine culture, and people weren't writing about it with the same kind of relish because it didn't interest them. It wasn't part of their experience. But I promise you, the Latino population, there were tons was being written and spoken about because tons was happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's just uh, yeah that's I just get a kick out of the culture down here and the, and the creative juices because yeah. I, I feel like in San Francisco we lost a lot of that and I you know it's like I don't mind cities change yeah. I remember my great grandparents when uh, there's this little area called Noe Valley and they were very working class mm-hmm. and the yuppies are moving in yeah. and it was just the death and I just it's the constant narrative of San Francisco and probably many other cities Everywhere. where you just go you know what what are you doing that's making the city better and then that's we kind of can be self-reflective and then go well if we don't have it let's make it kind of thing something will and and something will always come like cities are these vital living organisms i mean something will come you know a a new demographic will come and push another one out or you know and what ends up happening frequently is that it'll be interesting to see you know in new york and and even obviously in l.a as rents go up, as people, as the as the cost of living becomes too high for people to live in, they move. Okay, so if too many people move because the cost of living is too high and you can only have billionaires here, well, what does that say for your city? You know, look what's happened to New York. It is, it is, everyone can say, oh, it's so safe and so clean, whatever. Yeah, listen, I was there in the 80s and I will say I think New York is worse now. New York is, to me, is much more boring than it used to be. It's much more, you know, it's more staid. There's not a sense of excitement. Not a, you don't get the same vitality in the streets, you know, that, that, that I used to feel when I, when, I, when I used to go there. So I hope this city doesn't have that happen to it. And if it does, then, then it's self-correct. Right then, people move out. Then you got to figure out a new way to, you know, new scenes and new ways to get people back in here. Because, you know, it's yeah, it's interesting. And I think, well, probably geography-wise, like what's great about LA is it's kind of sprawl. Yeah. So that's that's what I love about it. You can continue to explore so like so many different cities in the city 
Right. I don't. I don't know that much about New York, but I feel like there's a containment of a sort there. In, in Manhattan, for sure. I mean, you have the outer boroughs, but there was always this sense, and again, kind of a snobby, you know, like white person, you know, like like rich that Manhattan was New York City, and everything else was just well, that was those were the bridge and tunnel, the outer right. boroughs, whatever. And look, that's not the case. Brooklyn is very, very much New York City. You know, uh, uh, Queens for sure is part. You know, it has become a little more. You know, certain parts of Queens are much more vital now. The Bronx and Staten. Staten Island probably will never be like you know. The, the, it was always a, a weird borough to begin with because it's so far away from New York City. It's really, really definitely part of New Jersey, but you know it's got a good tax base. So I think there were some <laughs> political reasons. Yeah. But you know for sure the main the main arteries of New York City I think are you know, have, have, have become a little, you know, are, are certainly, we're certainly gridded easier and certainly mapped and charted easier. And, and you know, this city has, is so vast that it still has pockets we're discovering or, we're, or, or, that are, or that are emerging or pop out here or there. And who knows where it's going to stop, what it's going to look like ten, even 10 years from now or 15 years from now. So, I know what I'll look like, a little older, a little fatter. <laughs> D- ditto. And me, me a little balder, unlike you. So. Oh no! That you say. There we go. Oh, and then so you've you've been in TV and film for so many years, and then you write a novel. So what what was? When did you go? You know what? I'm writing a novel. That that novel was in me for 20 years before I wrote it. Yeah, that I, that was something I had been talking about with my writing partner when I was even when I was writing all the movies we were writing together. I just had always. I, what happened was, I remember going, I remember when that thing germinated. It was, I, I was at a, a fundraiser um, at a studio executive's house, and I bumped into a woman who I had gone to elementary school with. And she seemed like, I, I went to this super crunchy, weird elementary school, the, which, is, I, I, which is depicted in the novel. Um, and I remember thinking, she seems really kind of lost. And I would, I remember thinking, you know, and she's like about one of like a few of these kids who grew up in these super progressive, crunchy homes with the pot-smoking parents who wanted to be called by their first names. And I just said, you know, uh, what, you know, everybody talked, there was a lot written from, you know, know, take it from Joan Didion to Joni Mitchell. There was so much documented about the adults of that era. Nobody ever looked at it from the eyes of the children. What was it like to be a kid in, you know, in this, in in the me generation? And so I said, what if I just, somehow I got this idea that, and and this is where writing for television and film can be really helpful for a novel because you just get a sense of storytelling and urgency. I said, what if I just wrote it like a bunch of short stories, almost like TV episodes, but every single story would be a different year in this kid's life. So you start in 1969 at the tail end of Manson. He's called the boogeyman. I remember when we were growing up, he was absolutely the boogeyman. And it goes from Manson to Reagan. So you take this boy from six and by the time it's over, he's 18 and leaving high school. And, you know, and at that point, the culture, you know, the counterculture is gone. The, the, the fallout from, from all of their, from, 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 you know, from their excesses has been felt, realized, and kind of, you know, the grown-ups taken over, put a grown-up in the White House. The country is going to take a swing toward the more conservative. And we're off to a different era. And that's what that, this, this, this book tries to capture, that transition period, that 10 year where we went from, we're all in this together of the 60s to I'm getting mine of the 80s, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah. And, um, and then writing for TV and film. How did you? How did you get into? Was that like a passion you had yeah. as a kid? I mean, I went. To, I went to UCLA for film school. So um, afterwards, I'm, it's funny because I went to UCLA for film school. I'd written some sitcom spec scripts. I don't think they were. They weren't very good because they weren't getting any jobs, and it wasn't that hard to get sitcom jobs back in the early '90s. Yeah. Um, and so weirdly, I just wrote a novel I mean <laughs> um, I, and while I was writing all these things and I started sh- sending it around to New York publishers and I wound up meeting a guy in a, at, at a publisher who took me inside and said look I think your book's really fun um, and really good um, I'm not gonna I can't get it published here because this is not what we published but I really want to write screenplays get the hell out of publishing and he pitched me a screenplay idea and we wrote it together and we sold it to, wow. to Disney and we became we started be, like when I was in my late 20s and so we just became these kind of in-house writers for the wonderful world of Disney for a few years and we had an office in the lot and we were you know it was like being in college but getting paid and, and, and getting to see like you know Goofy and Tigger walk around you know every now and then yeah so alright we gotta back up just a little yeah, bit because because so first off, you were trying to sell a novel, yeah. and then now was was this an agent that you approached, no, 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 no. or was this a publisher? This was a publisher. Oh. I got I'd gotten into my ex wife, my, my wife at the time, 
um, knew some people in publishing. And so she sent it around and got some editors to read it. And this guy was one of the editors who read it and just said, look, it's great. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to, I'm not going to, I can't publish it, but I'd love to write with you. Right. And so that's took me into a whole different direction. Novel did not ultimately get, came close, but did not get published. So, you yeah. know, yeah. And, and where is that novel now? Do you still have it in a uh, file? Do. I actually have a bound mock galley that we that we, we you know back in the days before you could really self, before self-publish in it we did a mock galley to send it around to studios see if we get any interest of it in it and we came close to a couple places you know had a pretty big actually an academy award winning producer who was already nameless at paramount was making a lot of rumblings about it but couldn't get it through and um it's so i still have it i mean i it's, it's you know it's my early 20 something self and it's right. you know really immature but but the one theme i think i wrote about that I think was kind of interestingly prescient was, you know, the idea that, you know, of, of, a, of a culture obsessed with cultural cannibalism, of just remakes and, re and everything kind of feed, feeding off itself as opposed yeah, to yeah. generating new stuff. And boy, my God, it, that only got worse in the almost 30 years since I wrote the book. So, wow. yeah, it's, that's, it's funny. So you started as you started out as the novelist. You got into the TV yeah. and film, and then you come out and you have, and there's a novel at the yeah. end of it. Something that's so the I mean, my, my primary jam has always been screenplays. I'm, I'm a movie lover. I've I've always been a passionate movie lover. I'm not as much a TV fan. I mean, but I, I just movies have been really. But I also love fiction. I've always wanted to write fiction. I love books, and I just you know and I always you know I, I said look you don't have to. You don't have to just go a whole hog on one. I mean, there are tons of novelist screenwriters. There are tons yeah. of novelist TV writers. There are tons of, you know, authors who write, you know, plays, but then they dabble in some TV here and there. And so, you know. It's just fun because it's all fiction and it's all, I mean, I, they, I teach classes on this and people are like, how do you do the novel? How do you do this? I'm like, worry about your character. Worry about the story. And then you just find well, And you write, and you just hit the nail on the head. Worry about the story. I, I don't know about you, but one of my, one of the, the things I find so frustrating about so much of where literary fiction is these days, you know, especially, you know, and you see it really in the, in the short story. You know, I don't know that the idea of story I don't know that the 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 the, the, the principle the, the 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 principles of storytelling. Okay, I don't see them many of these things accountable to them. I just see a lot of, you know, everyone's just you know a lot of beautiful description, a lot of wonderful styling, and I don't know that there's a narrative at the, at the core of any, a lot of this that that, that that draws you in or compels you. The idea that you know you know it's, it's always said that a story is a series of events that happen one after the other and a plot a novel or a plot really is a series of events that happen one because of the other right. and that idea that this event causes a reaction causes this to happen I don't see a lot of it in, in enough fiction these days right. and that's what's ready for TV and film really helped me with because in in, in, in you know in, in, in Children of the Canyon you know there there are storylines there those storylines all have their you know their their coming their resolutions they they all build they all arc out everybody has a beginning middle and end and it's just yeah it's interesting because we it's just we don't want the and this happened and then this happened we want the this happened oh crap it leads to this and explodes to the next level how can we get darker how can we go deeper action reaction right yeah. you know yeah sure and it's you know i think part of the reason look i i get frustrated you know the short story should be People should be excited to read short, great short stories, and yet, even when you go to the New Yorker, most of them just are so boring. Yeah, they're so boring, and you just you're like, like what? Or when I read the you know the whatever the best short stories you know collection, yeah. and I go through this, I'm like, most of these are dull as dishwater. Yeah. I, I don't know what about this would excite anybody who is reading it. Who, a, a, a kind of you know forget MFA program trained. I mean, just a regular person. And I don't. I think, by the way, a little bit of that is happening in the television world. Television, I can see, really kind of going the way of literary fiction. That it's just getting. It's appealing to smaller and smaller and smaller and more specialized audiences. And I, I guess they can make money with that and and take risks. That's great, you know, and take chances. But I don't want to see it become marginalized and become only for people on the coasts and elites in you know you know in, you know people you know who've gone to like you know liberal arts colleges in the Northeast. If, if if it kind of gets to that point and they just disregard three hundred fifty million people I don't know what the point is and again it goes back to what Tarantino does so well at least Tarantino tries to make movies for the masses he wants everyone to enjoy it there yeah. should be a democratization of this and I think that literary fiction and television they just somehow don't care you know well, the, speaking of New Yorker short stories it blows my mind because um, I'll read the first two paragraphs of a, one of those and I'll be like in my classes, I'd be like, are you kidding me? You guys can't start like this. Right. And, and they're better right. than that. And I'm just going, and these are people that, 
you know, there are 18 year old students that can kick ass over what I'm reading in the right. New Yorker. Right. It, it's, it's, you know, and, and look, again, I mean, I think the parallels are eerie. I mean, you know, I think a lot of the time things are done in television because of who the person is and literary fiction absolutely I mean if you know uh, if, a, if a rock star author sends in a real kind of bullshit nom, you know nothing piece yeah. then sure the New Yorker's in a public oh it's, you know, it's, it's right. so and so I don't name names like that because but like you I find you know objectively speaking if you read like there you know I know when I read a great short story I'm knocked out I'm yeah. like you know, you know I don't care who wrote it yeah. <laughs> you know but I, you know, I think that matters sometimes, and I just—I I wish it wouldn't. But, but also like you, I—I—I I, I, I worry. I, I just feel like the short story has devolved into this place where it's almost like the people who find these things brilliant are speaking a different language than I am. I, I feel like I feel like if I officially become that person on the other side of the cultural divide, where I no longer speak the language you're speaking because you're telling me this is brilliant, and I can't for the life of me see what you see brilliant about it. But there's a lot of you saying that, and yeah. so. For me, I'm always looking for heart. I'm always looking for heart in an honest place. And then I just feel like people aren't coming, people aren't getting vulnerable enough to get to that honest place and then write a story where you, we, can, we know there's something underneath with that. We, you know, we don't know. It's not blatant from the author, but we know there's something underneath it that, that really gut, can gut us. Mm. That's, a really, that's a really perfect way of putting it. It's like, you know, find me something that feels authentic, yeah. that feels honest and real. Start there. Yeah. And then go from there. But don't just layer a lot of, you know, precious observed garbage, at, you know, at something. And then just tell me, well, well I know it doesn't resolve in it. But you see, what you're supposed to extrapolate is, well, I don't know. I'm reading. I'm going, there's nothing fucking here. It started and stopped, but it didn't begin, middle, and end, you know. Right. It, you know. I'm not here to do homework. Right. <laughs> right. I'm not here to do homework. And honestly, I'm, yeah, I'm not here to be bored. Because you know what? If I'm bored, I can leave. I don't have, you don't, you can't force this down my throat. And... I don't think enough. Look, I mean, it's, it's the first thing I would tell my students when I was, I was like, listen, you know, like, you know, my, my fiance has a way, she talks to her kids, she'll say, look, I have to love you, but nobody else does, uh-huh. you know? And I feel like that's the thing you should, that's the exact approach to your story. Look, I have to love the story yeah. when I'm working on it, but nobody else does. And if, you know, so, so objectively speaking, what are my reasons? What are the things I think about this that are going to be compelling to other people? Why can I, how can I defend this? If I were in a room here and I had people folding their arms and looking at me and saying, Tell me why I give a shit. Okay, answer that question, objectively speaking. Yeah. Not because, but I think it's wonderful. Exactly. Yeah. And um, and you've also had a lot of experience in TV writers' rooms. So I, 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 a lot, a little, a little, a little, a little a much. I mean, very, 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 very oh, little. Okay. Yeah, unfortunately. I mean, more, more like more feet. Like as, as a feature writer, you're kind of it's like it's like being an author. You're writing and you're by yourself. You know. Yeah. So and it's done a little bit of it that, but. And then when when you're writing features, um, are there are there some where you were on set and through production the whole time? Or? No, <laughs> we were. You know, the thing about the about being a, a you know a feature that's good and bad is the bad news is you're not very powerful. You yeah. get rewritten. You can people can do whatever the hell they want, whatever. But the good news is you're you know off already on your next project. You know, yeah. it's now it's their problem. You know, I hope yeah. they do a good job with it. But you know, and, and look, I've had look, I've had scripts I wrote that I felt really really passionately about absolutely destroyed yeah. by you know and, and, and the problem is since there's you know if you God willing are working with really great people and everyone's on the same page including the actors and the director yeah. which is a big if but if everybody is just we all are on the same page and we just want to make this beautiful piece of work the most beautiful piece of work can be then sometimes you get something great, you know? Yeah. And then yeah, it's not going to cross your fingers because like Sidney Lumet would say, it's like a souffle, you know? It, it has to have that magic. It has, to, it has to float, not, you know, not, not sink. You know, it has to rise, not sink. But, but the problem is too many people want to make it their thing no matter what. Right. And then ego, become, ego. becomes, you know, the, the order of the day as opposed to, you know, that's the, that's, that's the objective, not the project itself. Right. So, yeah. Like serve the story, serve the character. If everyone does that from top to bottom, so then it's the, the story is your god. Yeah, Let, make the story be your god. You know, a lot of writers, a lot of artists get in trouble when they think, "Oh, I've had a good little run here. It must be all about me." Right. You you pick the wrong story or the wrong project, you're gonna f- come back down to earth real fast because we can only impose our will so much. The project itself must have the right DNA, and our stories themselves have to be. You know, the th- we have to remember we're just vessels. We're just we're just we're just messengers. Exactly. Yeah. We're just bringing this to the pelvis. We can shape it and be as you know, artisanal about it and be craftspeople and, and, and exert the best. But 
you know, nobody can turn, you know, shit into Shinola, you know? Was there ever a time where one of your films, some actor or somebody just nailed your lines above and beyond you ever could have thought and just went, you went, oh, crap, that that was sexy? I wish, but, like, the movies I had produced were all, like, Disney movies that, honestly, I, you know, we these were assignments, and this was, I mean, I I loved writing for Disney because we learned. We were, like, in boot camp. We were constantly turning stuff over. We had to learn, you know, what makes a, uh, you know, a a script a film, so we had to learn to write to actual movies as opposed to writing good words on the page. But there was never anything in them that was, like, you know, there was such a point of pride that I was like, because they weren't personal stories. These were high concept. And I actually, um, I have an essay in our, in, um, our friend Bruce Ferber's book um, about Hollywood, about my adventures writing those movies, about how crazy and unreal and goofy they were, and just, you know, some of the more surreal experiences and bringing them to life. But they were not, they didn't, they didn't come, you know, it's funny because you just mentioned a minute ago about coming from a place of heart and authenticity. We certainly threw a lot of heart into them, but they weren't, they didn't have the same, kind. they, they were, they were, there were some of, artificial to begin with they were constructed from i from big high concept ideas as opposed to very human conceits we had to add the humanity and layered into there right. but it's that's not really where it started yeah so so when you're so after you after you get a after you get a screenplay with your partner um and you get into disney what, what did you what did you have to learn to adjust when when you when you realized okay now we're, now we're working for a kind of a we're working for something that's yeah. way larger than us and they're looking at the bottom line yeah. was there something you had to adjust kind of in the way you wrote and your thinking and I mean not so much the way we wrote but with certainly our thinking certainly in terms of you know how we had to learn to take notes and how we had to become you know you have to basically. Uh, they don't want you to be quote you know, total yes men because they want you to they're hiring you for your your your, your vision your take and your crap but at the same time you got to do what they want you know you're working for them they're paying you so okay find a way to give them what they want and very often they'll speak in code i mean disney was actually great because we some you know our boss was a guy who was just very direct he'd say i need this i need this i need this. give me this as long as he gave it to him, he'd keep you employed all day. Now, you didn't have to agree. He didn't always have the, the best ideas or the funniest ones, but they were his and they had to be met. And no matter what, if you met them, you were fine. That was a very, so there was, a very, there was an elegant simplicity to that. Where, where, whether or not it fulfilled your creative you know, dreams of what you, why you got into this business, the, the, the bigger studios I was working for were frequently a much more complicated landscape because they had tons of executives, you had, you had producers. You know, when you're on a big project over there, there's a lot of people invested in making this thing good. And there's no one boss, you know? You're trying to please a lot of different people and you have to sort of figure out who's, you know, like, can I disregard this note from this guy and make this woman happy? And can I make, and, what, if, I, and if I hit her note just right, how do I got to massage it with this, you know, with, with this? And so there was a lot, there's a lot of, a lot of very, cro- you know, mixed signals. It was like being in the world's, you know, like being a nine-year-old in the, mo- in the biggest, most divorced, fucked up, blended family and like trying to navigate the landscape at Christmas, you know, and saying, oh shit, who's, who, you know, who's the alcoholic cousin who if I say the wrong thing is going to have a shit fit and melt down and storm out of the house. So there was a lot of that, you know, Going on. And we certainly figured it out, you know, to, on some level. We worked for years and, you know, until we just finally had had enough of writing these dumb comedies. I mean, we just wanted to write, you know, we each got to a point where I said, look, I just want to write stuff that matters to me more. And then I had this, you know, break where I taught at Northwestern for four years and kind of did a, a reboot and then came out with the novel and another book idea and then started writing the screenplays that I'm writing now. So the experience of handling the egos in the room and and navigating the different personality types there's they don't teach you that in school you can't be taught that that's one thing you know what what i always i always thought thought, said it would be a funny it'd be a great idea to to teach a course called basically hollywood for dummies you know in film schools which is like forget like coppola and and john ford and all the great masters and this just teach people here's what you do here's how you take a meeting here's how you pitch here's what you do when you get an assignment here's what I get an assignment here's what now a lot of that's changed because the old system that I was plugged into back then is all but gone now I mean you don't really have the kind of the sense of writing assignments and selling scripts it's, it doesn't work that way as much anymore you have to almost be more of an entrepreneur and so which means you have to really find a way to get movies made that have your name on it and however you do that by hook or by crook good for you but you better figure it out because 
you know, so so it's so as muddled and murky as it was back then, at least there was some sense of hierarchical structure and there was a corporatocracy of some sort. Yeah. Now, no. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what, I, don't, I can't imagine what advice I would tell you know, writers now. If you want to be a, quote, screenwriter, other than have your head checked, okay, so, you know, that would be the first piece of advice. <laughs> Secondly, <coughs> after that, I, I, I just, you know, say, find a way to get a movie made. I mean, even find a way to get the most rudimentary, so anything, just get stuff made. Yeah. Get stuff made by hook or by crook. Yeah. I don't know what else to tell you beyond that. And um, I, I've gone to some of these like uh, panels at the Writers Guild now, you know, because so, I'm trying to learn my, I'm trying to learn stuff. And yeah, and it, and, and just it kind of blows my mind that in the end people just don't know how to communicate with each other. And I, I, there was one lady who was talking about, um, yeah, it's, oh, this is a tedious story that I'll only get half right, but essentially um, she was the writer on a TV episode, and the director wasn't getting certain shots and certain, it's just, and she kept. It's suggesting that he get these, and he was difficult to work with. And after eight days, she finally got in touch with the showrunner. And I was like, wait, it took you eight days of production? And they had to go into reshoots because of all that. And I'm like, that's day one. I'm like, go to dinner with your director. Set, set a baseline. These people just don't know how to communicate. It's No, and I think, it, I, I think a lot of it is just that they're all really scared. Yeah, they're yeah, just fear. there's so much fear because there's just so much there are so many egos and so much there's so many tempers and so many just broken people who just never learned just to be grown-ups you yeah. know and so you have these you know I think there's a lot of that and I think everyone just doesn't want to oh I should if I'm paying again it's like think of it you're in the world's most dysfunctional alcoholic family yeah. and everything everyone's walking on eggshells and there I mean and yet at the same time there are wonderful adults in this industry. There are wonderful, creative, terrific, smart. I mean, I, I'm, I'm working on a project right now where, look, knock on wood, I mean, it could still go south. Like, they can, everything goes south. But the people I've worked with, to a man and woman, um, have been so incredibly, have embraced the spirit of the project. The notes and, and thoughts that they've shared with me, that they're, you know, the advice has only made it better. Yeah. The better, oh, and awesome. and so the vision is just you get the, you, you start to say oh I think I'm in good hands because everybody seems to get this nobody is saying do this because I want it they're saying no do this because I think I'll make it better I'm like you know what I agree yeah. a great idea fantastic yeah. you know yeah and 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 knowing when to get out of the way when someone's got it right it's like the it's the sexiest thing ever just yeah. you're, you're like whoa you're right put yeah. the head down let's do this exactly it's and 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 so. You can, I feel like, because, you know, the, the, the bad news is there's not as much money as, as, you know, and there's not as much opportunity as there was when I first broke in as a screenwriter, you know, 20 years, 25 years ago. But what there is now is a sense of maybe a little more ownership yeah. that I think screenwriters can be, you know, because you're not dealing with these corporate, you're just kind of dealing with more like a, like a, a group of people you're, you're getting together with and you're all going to make something together. Well, now you're a vital part of that pro process. So if you can... You can really, you know, be a team player and look at my age. I've, that's one thing I've learned to do is I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a teammate. And yeah. so I think if you do that right, then, you, you know, you got a shot. And if you and if you bring something they want. One of the things I like about movies is, you know, I don't I, TV is there's a lot of, you know, look, you, you got to work your way into a room. You got to schmooze up the showrunner. You got to you know, schmooze up executives. They got to want to hire you for other shows. You're not always, you know, you're, you're, even when you're creating something, you're still pitching it. It's just, it's all about a sales pitch. You're not writing something beginning, you know. For, so I, I always found that there was a lot of smoke and mirrors in television. For, whereas in movies, it's about writing stuff and then just say, here it is. Here's the project. And they don't care. They don't care how old you are, who you are. If you write something they love, they'll take it. And that's what I found. I found that just I've never been the guy who, you know, elbowed his way in because he navigated. I've just been the guy who wrote stuff that, you know, when I was lucky and when I was fortunate, people wanted to buy it. Yeah. And that's how I've gotten my way, you know. Yeah. Kind of worked. And then, uh, and, and so when did you start teaching? Was teaching after you were working in teaching the... was after I was working for a little while with my writing partner back then. I started teaching at UCLA a little bit, and then I got this gig at Northwestern where I was back and forth from Chicago throughout yeah. the school year from 2007 to 2011. Oh, cool. And since then, not so much. Yeah. Is that and uh, were you teaching writing and film at Northwestern? Yeah. Film, yeah, film, film and television. Um, you know, the, the the what I find a little frustrating about the teaching model is, you know, in fiction and poetry, 
it's a given that if you're, no matter how, with exception maybe two or three authors who just make enough money off, you know, like T.C. Boyle, Michael Chabon, or whatever, you can count on one hand, who make enough money off literary fiction they don't have to teach, every literary author teaches. They don't make enough money from their books to, and, and the books take too long to write. So it's just given that Juno Diaz, who would teach at MIT, or whatever, or you know, people you know, would teach at various, you know, Columbia or NYU, whatever, Iowa, you know, take your pick. But the 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 thing you don't have in the film and television world is teaching being a you know a, a you know as a highly respected day job that you know a, that artists have to do. Yeah. There's a there's a kind of you know sense that oh if he's teaching it's not he's just because you know it's not working. Oh, yeah. Now in television, sure because television is a day job and, and you don't have time. You just don't you know I mean, at the point. But in film in film you do, and I feel like I would love to see the film the the screenwriter model. Mimic the, the the authorial and, and, and poet model a little bit, whereby it's really a respected day job for artists who you know sometimes have down periods, you know, but are vital working artists and can have a lot to offer the you know, the young people coming in or, or the you know the, the neophyte you know, coming into the ranks. I mean, for me, when it, teaching for me almost informs more to me and myself, and I feel like I learn. And not one, one I learn, and then two, I got to practice what I preach, and that just. Well, that's and that's the third part of it. Is that you're exactly right. You become a better writer by teaching. I it's not it's it's no mistake that you know the stuff I wrote pre Northwestern versus post is night and day. I'm a I am a you know incredibly different writer, and I do believe that the process of working through these principles and really learning them myself by 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 really going through them in the classroom and just breaking them down in such digestible tidbits was hugely helpful for me. Incredibly formative. Yeah. Yeah, and then and I and I and I still get a kick out of using some of the same lectures, and then at the same time I like I find new ways of looking through different scenes, and it just I it it almost I don't know it, I get to geek out and nerd out on just scene work and. I, I think I like it more than my students. They're just, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and look, students, you know, are, some are amazing, some, you know, but, and you always learn from them. It's like children, like anything else. But no question that you, that in just doing these deep dives into, you know, in plumbing the, the you know, f- looking for the answers, you know, of like, what, you know, I, I, that's how I look. I was self-taught. I mean, I went to UCLA for film school, but I wouldn't say I learned a ton there. For me, I would just sit and stare at movies over and over until I understood their secrets, until I said, you know what? Or read fiction or read whatever and say, ah, that's what you're doing there. Oh, that's how you're structuring. Oh, that's the choice you made to kind of deflect here and then zero and then bring. And that's just, and so I feel like in, in replicating, in bringing, so in, 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 in distilling that from, from successful models and then giving it back and saying, here's what, you know, here's what I extracted from these things. Here's what I learned. Here's how you can, you know, you can't, I, when I was teaching film frequently, I wouldn't start by saying, here's the Godfather, here's Kurosawa. I'm like, I'm like you're not going to, look, those are way beyond where you are right now. You're not going to learn how to write Kurosawa, okay? You're not, but you can learn to write Back to the Future. You can learn to write good genre movies, okay, that work, that are successful because they are simple. And if you understand their structures, okay, if you really break their structures down, they can teach you a lot about how to use the building blocks to build successful and then from there you can go on and build and find your voice and too many, too many people do it the other way around they want to start with their voice I'm like that's great but can you plug that into a structure that works can you can you write something successful write something successful first then your voice will come you know that's how it worked for me and the beauty of um, and the beauty of watching films over and over again that uh that I used to not worry about, you know, I would just, I would just watch them and just enjoy them. And now looking back after kind of being in the process and going, wow, look at the breadcrumbs they're putting. I didn't even know they were breadcrumbing right there. And totally. it's like, yeah, totally. Right. And like, and now you'll be able to look at and say, okay, I'm guessing that thing you threw there in the first act, that's, you're bringing that back. And right, exactly. That's going to, that's going to pay off for this because otherwise why the hell did you bother right. showing it to me so right. early in the film? You know? Yeah. It's, and if you, and if you did, if you showed it to me and it doesn't come back, then that's just bad, you know, that's just bad craftsmanship. You know, yeah, like like introducing a gun, and then it's just yeah, like exactly. that's the yeah. that's the big one, right. right? And Billy Wilder was a master of that. If you want to look at a guy who just Billy Wilder has seven or eight movies. I mean, not only did he work seamlessly within genres, but he could just set something up in the first act without you know was there, and then Lord knows by the time that third act came around, boom, that thing was just you know paid off dividends. Yeah. You know, it's like buying Amazon for a buck. You know. And, <laughs> you know. And all of a sudden, holy shit, it's a billion dollars in the third act. Yeah, I remember when Amazon came out, and I was like, isn't that a forest? (laughs) I, yeah, I can't get started on the stocks. I I had app, whatever. Yeah, whatever, you know. There'll be others. 
<laughs> so um, what are you working on now? What, what's what's getting you off right now? Um, oh, wait, wait, that one, one is a sexual question. Don't answer that. I, you know, you know, I, I don't think getting off is the wrong term entirely because I, I mean, for me, this, you know, I love, I've never loved what I'm working on more than what I love right now. Um, I have, you know, everything. I like to say that, you know, getting a movie produced is, it's, it's like, it's like, the difficult just to appreciate the level of difficulty um, for nuts and bolts factor it's like lining up a bone marrow donor whereby if you match four numbers it's amazing five numbers is almost unheard of but you need six yeah. and so all of the things I'm working on right now are in the, are in the four and five matches right now they're not one or two they've all cleared through they've got attachments they've, they've got you know financiers directors I mean you know, and, and they're all with major major people you know one of the things that I find reassuring is that it, it's a it's a good feeling that the most of the stuff I work on is based on true story, um, and usually something with some social or topical relevance. And I love writing about the you know the seventies and eighties and periods I grew up in, but about you know or, or you know the, actually the story I'm, I have the farthest along right now is something that takes place during right around World War II. Um, and I just I always ask myself, in addition to why does anybody else give a shit? But why is this a movie now? Why does anyone care now about this? What is what about it makes people you know contemporary would make a contemporary audience leave their house and go out to a movie theater on a Saturday night because they have to see this movie because something about it is pulling them into a movie theater. We have to ask ourselves these questions now. We have to, you know, audiences are, they can stay home, they can stream it, they can watch Netflix, they don't, they can not even know it exists in the first place. So, you know, you have to really demand that of the project and of yourself as a writer. You have to just ask yourself more questions now than you even had to 10, 15, 20 years ago. So, but that said, you know, all the things I'm working on, just, they get me up. They get me awake every morning. They get me excited at the laptop. They get me really jazzed about putting it out there and, Seeing who's going to respond and and you know and where and where it's going to lead to. So yeah, yeah. And then and then what else gets you jazzed outside of the writing and what what's, what are other things in life that? You know. Well, it's interesting you said about the, other than the writing. Actually, an addendum to that is, I've been focusing really hard lately on trying to really make it so much about the writing. In Hollywood, it's very easy to get obsessed with making it all about the results from the writing. It's like, how much, how am I going to get rewarded? How many awards am I going to win? How much money am I going to make? And that's a real easy way to get behind the eight ball. If you can really do whatever you can to make it so much more about the writing and let the results look, you obviously you want results. You want your work to get acknowledged, noticed, produced, you know, you know loved, etc. But not make that, that's, that, that's, the, that's, you know, the tail that wags the proverbial dog. So you have to really try to avoid that. But outside of that, what else gives me a chance? Um, I mean, you know, I, I try to spend as much time as I can exploring. I love, I love where we live. Um, I love, you know, I, I, I love to take adventures throughout the Southland. I love to, you know, be out in nature as much as I can. You know, just, we have that. One of the beautiful things with this city is when I lived in the middle of downtown L.A. in one of the most industrial neighborhoods, in not only this city, but any city, literally eight minutes away was Elysian Park. So I would drive to go see a friend, park, and then I'd be out in the middle of nature where coyotes and rattlesnakes and rabbits and whatnot are walking around. And that's one of the extraordinary things with this city is we just have this wonderful, delicate balance, this juxtaposition of the ultra, ultra urban and the ultra nature, you know, the ultra outdoors. And so, and, and, it, and it keeps, and it hopefully, ideally, it gives us the ideal balance. Um, for their hobbies, I love to read. You know, I love to, I love to, you know, to kayak. I love to snorkel. I love to travel. You know, yeah, all good stuff. Play sports, watch sports. You know, I, I heard this great quote uh, sometime this last year. It said, uh, "Reading is breathing in, writing is breathing out." Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah right. yes, exactly. Perfect. And you know what? You're right. I, I mean, I was just hearing a story about a TV producer, literally lunch a few hours ago, who was excited about a project until he realized it would entail him actually having to read read a book. And then he turned to the person who was talking about it and just made this like gagging sound, like "Oh my God, I'm gonna I'm gonna puke if I actually have to read a book." Whoa. And I just, I, you know, it's it's it, it's appalling how you know how you surprised how many how many people creative people don't really sit there and spend much time reading. And I don't I don't know. I mean, sure, magazines or articles or news, but I mean, like really reading a great a great work, a great piece of writing, which still to this day, I mean, when I you know when I find that 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 great book. I'm electrified for days, you know. I, it's it's uh, if I'm not read if not if I don't have a book that I'm actively reading and I'm not actively writing every single day, 
I'm not a fun person to be around. No. <laughs> me, me, me neither. Yeah. Me neither. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, writing part I always take care of, but I, I've been really much better as of late about just making sure, like you said, the breathing in part. That's, yeah. you know, that's, that's, I love that quote, man. I'm going to use that. Yeah. And it's not mine. I wish it was mine. I can't remember yeah, whose it was. Doesn't matter. As long as, you know, it, it, it's, as long as, as long as it's there, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> but wait a second. Let's pretend it's mine. Right. I'll just edit that sure. part out. Just we'll like pretend like, it's like, mine. Like, like so, so we'll do a retake. So yeah. I'm glad you liked my, I'm glad you liked my quote on that. <laughs> well, I'm glad you liked my latte reference. <laughs> glad you liked my new verb. <laughs> I introduced to the lexicon, so. Yes, and everyone, you can use that, but remember to credit us. David, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Tony. It's been a pleasure talking, man. Good, good to hang out here. And I'm so glad I got to introduce you to Philippe. Thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony. David Cookoff on Drinks with Tony. Check out the book he edited, Los Angeles in the 1970s, Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, as well as his novel, Children of the Canyon. Thanks for listening to the show. I will see you next week.